Hi everyone, welcome to Psychodrama Podcast, where I, Katie, my co-host Leo, talk about clinical practice, psychological science, and societal controversies. Before we go to our interview with our expert guest, Dr. Sarah Victor, I wanted to tell you a bit about her background. Dr. Sarah Victor is an assistant professor of psychological sciences at Texas Tech University. She completed her undergraduate training in psychology at Stanford University and her doctoral training in clinical psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Dr. Victor completed her doctoral internship and postdoctoral training in psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine prior to her faculty position. Dr. Victor is a clinical psychologist whose research and clinical work focus on understanding and addressing non-suicidal self-injury and suicide. In addition, she conducts research and advocacy on psychologists and trainees with mental health difficulties and the hopes of creating a more inclusive field with respect to these common and often stigmatized experiences. It is this last topic that prompted us to invite Dr. Victor onto our show. We wanted to talk to her about some projects that she and her co-authors recently shared preprints of. Both of those papers are linked in the show notes, and they are titled Only Human Mental Health Difficulties Among Clinical Counseling and School Psychology Faculty and Trainees, and Leveraging the Strengths of Psychologists with Lived Experience of Mental Illness. Leo and I both really enjoyed this conversation and value the work that Dr. Victor and her co-authors are doing and hope that you enjoy hearing about some of the process behind the projects, what their main findings were, and what the implications are. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie. And this is your co-host, Leo. How are you, Leo? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm just enjoying a little bit of temperate weather here in, in Portland and doing okay. Biked in for this very special interview that we have lined up. Well, I'm I'm also very excited to have Sarah here today. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm doing great. Just, uh, you know, enjoying some nice warm weather down here in Texas and trying to kind of wrap some things up for the summer. And I apologize for the noise. My cat just climbed all over my desk, of course. So excellent. <laughs> he is, wants to be a part of going, things. Yeah, before we get going, let's get the important stuff out of the way. What's your cat's name? <laughs> we have we have two. Uh, ah. One is Nico. He's the one who was just on the desk. And then we also have one named Cecil, who doesn't jump on the desk, but may meow in the background. <laughs> I think by now we need like a, we need a, an Instagram of all the of all the pets we've had on, on Psychodrama's guests. There have been a number of very cute uh, animals mm-hmm. who have joined in for the recording part. Well, that's I'm glad I'm glad we got to that important topic. I think yes. that the next thing I'm I'm eager to ask Sarah about is what inspired you to conduct this study looking yeah. at the lived experiences of mental health difficulties in clinical counseling and school psychology programs. Yeah, well, it really started um, from kind of a a more specific project that I was working on related to lived experience of Mm. self-injury, and that was with Jennifer Muellenkamp and Stephen Lewis, and we did that commentary, I think it came out in 2019, maybe officially in 2020, Um, and that was just from conversations with them and from other folks in the field, um, my primary research areas in self-injury and suicide, and we wanted to kind of put together this commentary about appreciating and valuing and 
trying to be more inclusive around lived experience, kind of from the perspective of self-injury being something very stigmatized and also um, sometimes more visible than other types of mental health um, Mm. difficulties. Mm-hmm. And so as we were putting that paper together, I started digging into the literature and was just really surprised by how little research there had been. Um, what did exist seemed really focused on impairment in clinical practice, mm-hmm. which is a super important thing to study, of course. Um, but it kind of ignored the fact that many people have lived experience of mental health difficulties that aren't impairing to their clinical work or mm. among psychologists who aren't doing clinical work like faculty. Mm. Um, and I just kept digging and digging. And we couldn't find anything, mm. um, which is, you know, always for a scientist, one of those mm-hmm. like, well, well, why, why don't we just find <laughs> out? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started talking with Andrew Devendorf, who's uh, the kind of main co-investigator on this project, um, who we got to know each other through academic Twitter he was really interested in in this topic as well. And we said, well, you know, especially for programs that are accredited, clinical counseling, school psychology, there's repositories that list all the programs and you can get all the websites and go pull all their emails. So right. why don't we just send out a survey and figure this out? Um, so that's kind of what sparked it um, yeah. was really just reading the literature and being really frustrated by not being able to find an answer. I think it's so interesting because I really, one of the things that I found very um, alluring and interesting about this particular study and the commentary is that you you basically kind of spoke about an elephant that has been in the mm-hmm. room. That's how it felt to me, is that there's yes. been this elephant in the room, which is just unspoken, that, you know, there's this idea that, um, uh, you know, we... The, there's a common saying you mentioned it in the in the in the paper regarding uh, that research is research and the mm-hmm. idea that you know there's a certain high percentage of people who have lived experience with mental disorders in academia in um, and I'm and I'm sorry I'm forgetting the name of the the term that you came up to encompass uh, ed psych and school psych mm-hmm. and counseling but all of these uh, all of these branches of psychology. But there's this kind of unspoken rule that you just don't talk about that very much. Or, of course, if you do, you may just enter your chances or you may be looked right. at weak or something. So would you would you mind providing a little bit of that? So first off, you know, I, I say kudos for kind of just poking at that bear well, a little bit because I think you've all <laughs> seen it there. And uh, just, you know, whether it's not for, for whatever reason, nobody has touched it. And yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, yeah so maybe talk a little bit about the how that came about and how you felt about it and the, the, a brief overview of your of your study findings. Yeah. So I think it's one of those things that as people talk about it more, you know, with individuals or with supervisors or with fellow grad students or, you know, at any point in their training, you start to realize, oh, I'm not the only person. Like everybody's right. kind of advised, you know, don't talk about this. Don't mention it. You're going to mess up your chances of admission to grad school or chances of getting a job. And so no mm-hmm. one talks about it. And then if no one talks about it, every individual and, and there's no data on it. Every individual sitting there thinking, I have some deep, dark secret. Everybody else doesn't have this background. I'm the only one and I have to keep it quiet. And then when you start, you know, for me personally, as I started to talk to more people about my lived experience in more kind of individual settings and and people that I felt close to and I trusted, oftentimes the response was, oh, yeah, me too. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I know someone who had that experience or I had a 
a different experience, but I also haven't talked about it. And after a while, when you start to talk to all these different people who are all hiding the same thing, it's sort of like, why, why is this happening? You know? Um, and I think it's just a lot of fear in academia and I'm sure this applies in other fields of academia Mm -hmm. as well. Um, you know, that, that it's so competitive to get into grad school, to get into internship, to get faculty positions, to get, you know, prestigious clinical postdocs, all that kind of stuff. People don't want to risk it. And it's so amorphous, like what goes into those decisions mm-hmm. that it makes it really easy to say, well, it's it's safer not to say anything. And that's, mm-hmm. I mean, in many cases, that's probably true, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to imply that that is not an accurate or reasonable concern, right? Mm-hmm. Um because stigma is real, discrimination is real. Right. Um, so in terms of the findings, we really found what I think a lot of us were expecting, which was very, very high prevalence of mental health difficulties and diagnoses. So about 80% of the respondents to the survey had some past or present mental health difficulty, diagnosis, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, Rates were a little bit higher among graduate students compared to faculty, and we have some hypotheses as to why, mm-hmm. although we can't um, we can't affirmatively clarify that based on our data. Um, most people reported that the difficulties they had started before they got to grad school, um, and most reported either no or mild professional impairment, which mm-hmm. I thought was really important because right. a lot of times there's this perception of, well, if you have some history of something, it must be currently an issue and it must be impacting your professional work. Um, And we know that there's lots of ways that mental health difficulties can impact people socially, familially, you know, in lots of ways outside of the professional realm. So that I think was really important. I can go into more detail about the finding. I could probably talk about those for like an hour. So feel free to to let me know like how much detail you want there. No, that's 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 really good. Yeah, I was going to ask what what hypotheses you think about the the differences between students and faculty that you mm. found. Yeah, so I think there's probably a combination of a lot of different things and obviously want to lead with a caveat that these are just my hunches. Um, We can't really speak to them in the data. So one thing that I think about a lot is cohort effects. We know that people who are younger are on average more willing to disclose mental health difficulties. They're more willing to seek treatment. So um, given that grad students are on average younger than faculty, that could easily be be at play. Um, It could also be that the field is changing in terms of its willingness or acceptance around these issues such that perhaps maybe faculty with lived experience were historically more excluded than grad students are now. Um, And then it could also be that grad students with lived experience are selecting out of kind of the faculty trajectory potentially for a variety of reasons. could be because of negative experiences they're having in academia, could be because a lot of the expectations around trying to pursue an academic career are, they're challenging for everybody, but they can be even more challenging if you're dealing with a chronic mental health condition. You know, you have to move, you have to get new treatment providers, you have gaps in financial support, gaps in, you know, ability to have social support and connection. So um, my hunch is that there's probably an interaction of all of those things. Sure. Um, 
but yeah, I think that's that's something I really want to look into. We do have some qualitative data in this data set that we haven't haven't started digging into yet, but we're hoping to to pull from it for future projects. I think one of the things that I find also interesting is perhaps the, the paradox, right, that we are a field that is dedicated to trying to reduce stigma of mental illness and yeah. uh, try to speak and educate the public in general. And yet we very much hold that stigma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I, I, I don't know if you were you. I don't even know if I have a question. I guess that's a comment, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that. it's it is. You know, I'm I'm sure I know people have asked me about, well, how does this compare to mm-hmm. trainees and faculty in engineering? Or and I'm like, I don't know. That's a really good question. Yeah. I haven't studied other fields, so I can't really compare. But part of what really makes it all the more frustrating that we don't have these data is the fact that so many of us professionally care about stigma. We care about healthcare access. We care about people, you know, seeking treatment and seeking help when they need it and not being harmed because of their lived experience. And yet among ourselves, it's different for some reason. Um, And I don't know if that's because of concerns around professional impairment, you know, which are, again, reasonable things to worry about, but not synonymous with lived experience. I think there's also probably some stigma and some bias around the idea that we should somehow magically be able to kind of heal ourselves, um, which is not anything you would ever expect in any other profession, right? We don't say to MDs, well, if you get cancer, you can't be an MD anymore because that means that you didn't you didn't manage to treat yourself or prevent yourself from getting cancer, right? Right, We know that that's not a reasonable thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet somehow in psychology, we, we act differently. And I don't really know why I don't really get it. What was, what was interesting to me, the parallel that I've thought about before and your paper, your paper reminded me of is that it is not uncommon to see people who go into other helping professions, right? To say, so for example, medicine, that the reason why they choose uh, their internship or the residence is per- oftentimes related to a personal experience with mm-hmm. it. So it's not uncommon to see a resident to say, you know, they, they have a history of cancer in their family that they really got right. an interest, they really wanted what to vanquish and help that problem. Yep. However, when, and right now I'm going through this process with my students uh, who, are, who are applying for internship, mm-hmm. um, they're asking, you know, what, what am I supposed to write about in, in the autobiographical yep. uh, essay? And that autobiographical essay, and I, 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 and I literally brought up your, 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 your study, and I was like, look, this is a really interesting area, because in the past, mm-hmm. uh, I have been like, you know, you want to be self-disclosing, but you do not, you know, want to super spill your guts about yep. other things, kind of, and because I've certainly received that, that, that um, advice, so it, it is interesting that we don't expect that from other, other helping professions, if you will. But yeah. as you allude to, um, somehow there is a stigma that if you have a history of depression or, um, you know, anxiety, whatever it is, and then you happen to be interested in it or a lived experience with it, then all of a sudden it's like, well, are you really cut out for this? Are you really going to be uh, impartial? Are you going to be able to handle it? Yeah, I guess that would be the, yep. the, the experience. Can you handle exactly. the research in this area? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that there's there's two pieces to that. One yeah. is this um, sort of, oh, well, if you disclose that you have, uh, you know, lived experience, are you going to be able to handle grad school? Grad, grad mm-hmm. school's hard. 
internships hard. And what I try to remind people is just because someone doesn't disclose doesn't mean that they don't mm-hmm. have lived mm-hmm. experience. And it doesn't mean that they might not develop some kind of mental health difficulty in grad school, even if they didn't have it before, right? We know that the lifetime prevalence of mental health conditions in the general population is around 80, 85%. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of a, a human experience. It's almost like saying, well, you know, if you've gotten the flu, well, what if you get a really bad flu in grad school? Like no right. one would ever say that. Right. Um, and then I think the other piece that you're reflecting is this idea of objectivity or this idea that you're not going to be objective. You're not going to be able to be kind of scientific about your research. And I think there's often the assumption that if someone has lived experience, it has to relate to their research area, which it doesn't necessarily like you can have lived experience in one domain and research something totally different. Um, But even if it does, I think we do a disservice to trainees, but also to the general approach to science Mm -hmm. by acting like, well, if you have lived experience, you're not objective and everyone else is objective. Like the truth is, I mean, huge areas of psychological science have shown that humans are not objective. Um, We, you know, we're constantly biased by our experiences, by people around us, by situational factors. And so rather than pretending, oh, if we select out people with this experience, then the field is going to be objective Mm -hmm. to say every person comes in with their own unique background experiences, perspectives in all sorts of different ways. How can we acknowledge that and acknowledge how that might shape us in one direction or the other? And what kind of checks do we put into science to make sure that it's not just one person interpreting results or one person developing a theory without Mm. considering all the other perspectives? So that's something at least I try to kind of hammer home to people. Yeah. Sarah, have you read Marsha Linehan's memoir? Mm. I have not yet. It's on my list, but I'm super excited to read it. One of the things that's really painful in it is that she talks about how she had gained all of this experience and applied for graduate programs in psychology, Mm -hmm. but there was a gap in her education due to being hospitalized Mm -hmm. for with severe mental health problems and, and, how basically she felt that she was punished for being mm-hmm. honest in her personal statement and, yeah. and describing that gap. And after that, how she was basically felt like she had to hide until, of course, later in the New York Times right. sharing that she that she has struggled. And, right. and, and a couple things that were highlighted to me are one that you can see how well-meaning, quote unquote, practical advice mm-hmm. like, you know, Marsha, if you want to get in, you you have to not share that huge part of your life, even though it did yeah. very much inspire her and motivate her to try to help people. You know, she says yeah. now that I felt like I'd gotten out of hell. I wanted to pull other people out of it mm-hmm. and wanted to develop something for it. You can see that that aspect of it. But then the other thing that stands out, I think, is that sometimes the typical break the stigma awareness campaigns focus, leave out some of the more severe mental health problems or the ones that are outside of anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Do you 
In things that you've heard and, and talking to people, maybe among your co-authors or just in general, have you noticed that where people feel more comfortable disclosing anxiety because that might even mm. be viewed as beneficial in grad school, but then yeah. other types of things like self-injury or personality disorders or bipolar that there's that those are harder to disclose? Yeah, I think that there that's a super important point. And I think one of the things that's come up when we've been talking, you know, about both the empirical paper and the commentary is, is, well, are you are you saying that everybody should disclose? No, mm. <laughs> 100% no. A, it's not my position to tell any other individual person what they should do with their life, right? Mm. Um, Because there are significant risks involved mm. with disclosing, depending on a, what it is you're disclosing, what your environment is, what other kinds of individual factors are, are at play for you. Um, and I think you're right that, you know, in our data, certainly the most common difficulties were depression and anxiety. Actually, the third most common was suicidal thoughts and behaviors, which surprised me. Um, I wasn't expecting that to be mm. as prevalent, at, but we there were obviously other Diagnoses that were less common, like psychotic disorders, bipolar disorder, personality disorders. And I'm not sure if that's because people are less willing to to check yes on the survey for those and or that the field is more biased against those folks and they're being excluded from grad school and from faculty life. I think there's probably lots of of possible reasons there. Um, you know, I think that's huge that there are real differences depending on what you're disclosing, when and how. Mm. Um, I mean, this project and kind of my own role in it and my own disclosures are things I've been thinking about since before I got into grad school. And it's only been since I'm now faculty in a really supportive department where I feel, you know, kind of secure in my position that it felt like the risk benefit calculation changed. Mm. You know, this is something that I wouldn't have put in my job applications when I was trying to get a tenure track job. Mm. Um, my hope is that, you know, 20 years from now, people will look back and say, wow, that was so ridiculous that nobody mm. could talk about that. What, why were we giving that advice? Um, but it is really important to recognize this balance between kind of giving advice that we want to be truly the best advice and recognizing the environment and the circumstances we're in. Like I now have undergraduate right. students that I'm, I mentor about trying to apply to grad school. And when we talk about this question, it's really trying to balance your own values and goals and ethics and priorities with the genuine risk that you, you know, mm -hmm. if you disclose something, you might not get an interview, you might not get a position, right. you might have to apply another year. Um, it's really, really hard. Thank you for sharing that perspective, Sarah. One of the things that I like about the follow-up to the study is that you also did, there was a commentary that you and your mm -hmm. co-authors wrote and talked about not only recognizing that mental health difficulties exist, but also talking about how to reduce prejudice. And one of the phrases that, that you use in that paper is, coming out proud as co-authors mm -hmm. to change that and, and to shift that. So it's it's identifying it, but also talking about how to change that. How did that commentary come together? Was that something that you initially planned alongside the empirical study? 
No. Um, so that was actually just a, a also sort of a, a very cool thing that developed on academic Twitter. So, um, so I should clarify some of the, some of the authors overlap on the two projects, but, um, a good chunk of them don't. Um, so it's, it's related, but not identical author lists. Um, and basically what happened, um, I've made a, a friend through academic Twitter, Jessica Schleider, who's faculty at Stony Brook, and she had posted about her lived experience while we were in the process, I think, of collecting these data earlier in 2021. And when she posted, there was this really positive response and people really acknowledging how important it was for, for folks in positions of relative privilege, you know, primarily faculty, to be able to to talk about their experiences. And so she and I started talking and said, wouldn't it be great if, if we could have a paper that was where all of the authors said, Hey, we all have lived experience. The goal of this paper isn't to narrate each of our lived experiences in detail, but it's to say, this is the perspective we're coming from what we've seen and what we think are starting points for a conversation around how do we improve kind of the, level of support and inclusion in the field for people with these experiences. And so as she and I were talking about it, I said, well, this empirical paper, the data is being collected right now. Our goal is to get these out the door, you know, later this year. What do you think about trying to kind of map these on together as a pair of papers to really put faces to this empirical data? Um, she was super excited about it. And so we both reached out to friends and colleagues that we knew in the field who we thought might be interested, got this great group together. Um, and I think they really strengthen each other because I think the empirical paper makes the important point of saying in a rigorously designed study, we exist, you know, folks exist with lived experience in the field and this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have the data to say, what do we do about it? You know, it's really a prevalence paper. And then the commentary paper has the ability to say, here's here's some things to talk about with your colleagues, to talk about with your students, to be thinking about in terms of concrete steps that you can be doing at an individual level, a program level, and even at sort of a field-wide level in terms of tracking these data in a more rigorous way. Um, but we also knew that if we had the commentary by itself, people will say, well, how do we know that that's you know, really representative of other, maybe this is just a random list of, you know, 12 people. Um, maybe this isn't really a big deal. So by putting them together, it's kind of hopefully strengthening both of them. Um, and coming out proud, I, I should uh, acknowledge, I, I did not come up with that term. That is Patrick Corrigan's term. Um, he's done a tremendous amount of work on anti-stigma efforts around mental illness, um, including in workplaces, and the benefits of uh, kind of contact-based approaches to address stigma, meaning actually interacting with people from stigmatized groups or people with mental illness. Um, and he actually has a program that he's developed called Honest, Open, Proud that works with people with uh, severe mental illness, primarily um, kind of building support for making the decisions around disclosure and how to navigate that in a way that then is both beneficial for the individual and hopefully for the people around them. Um, so really excited to build on that. That's Thanks for sharing how that came together. And I also just want to briefly mention that I was excited to see Brooke Ammerman on the paper. Mm -hmm. I actually had the honor of overseeing her 
undergraduate thesis oh, project. So I reached out to her when I oh, saw awesome. it. She did her undergraduate at North Dakota State University. So oh, just great. wanted to, to mention how wonderful it was to see Brooke and, and the other co-authors too. I, so yeah. thank you for sharing that that process. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I just had this random thought that popped into my mind I, as you mm-hmm. uh, you've had probably some, some very positive reactions. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to whether you've had some kind of negative. What, what, what have been some of the more negative reactions or perhaps some more devil advocate? And I'm curious as to whether you've noticed any patterns. I, I immediately can I can see some of the older and more seasoned faculty perhaps don't be like what are you doing doing this paper yeah <laughs> kind of thing. like are you what are you doing revealing the behind this the, the curtain you know this is something <laughs> we're talking about uh or 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 have you been or maybe you had kind of the old uh, I, and i love that you use the term coming out because i, I do keep, keep thinking about the, the process of coming out mm-hmm. for people who maybe maybe gay it's a very personal process and you know you can't tell the person how to do it but i can also see this generational divide in which before yes. you just didn't talk about it and now you're like, yeah, you're out, out and proud, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there might be people who who say, how did you know? Why are you doing this? Like, you can just live and let live. And right. other people who may be saying, gee whiz, like, holy crap, I wish it was like this when I was your age. Yeah, it's been really interesting. You know, I think um, overall the response has been exceptionally positive, and I think that's probably because so far. These are preprints, and most mm. of the conversation's been happening online on Twitter. And <laughs> so, I, so I peer review yet? Yeah, I think it's. I think we're. I think we're um, probably, you know, getting biased responses in terms of we're getting folks that are on average a little bit younger, you know, having these conversations on social media. Um, and so, by and large, the responses have been super positive. Um, I do expect that when these papers, you know, go through the peer review process, are eventually out in peer reviewed form, that then we're going to have more kind of responses from all directions. And I think where it's going to be challenging is is actually moving forward and changing things to say, okay, this is the state of of the field. So let's have a conversation as a program about how to support students in getting access to mental health care that doesn't overlap with their practica placements. Let's talk about how to um, make transparent what we're asking of applicants when we tell them to submit a quote unquote personal statement. What are we going to tell applicants about what we actually want in that statement? Um, And I think that's where things are going to get challenging because you know, anytime you're trying to change something that's been around and established for a long time, the question is, well, if this works, why change it? And I think from my perspective, it's because it's not really working. There's lots of people who are getting excluded from the field for, you know, no good reason. There's lots of people who are feeling ashamed and embarrassed and unable to kind of be authentically themselves because they're hearing all of these comments or or being told, even if they're not hearing things explicitly, they're being told, don't say anything because then it will harm you in some way. Um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking about and anticipating as we move these conversations forward. Um, I've been really grateful, honestly, that the response has been so positive so far. Um, I think the challenging thing, at least for me as an individual, is not knowing who's read it, who hasn't read it. If I haven't heard from people, is it because they're feeling really awkward about it or because they just haven't read it yet, you know, um, that kind of a thing. But so far we haven't had a lot of people actively pushing back um, in relation to any of the specific stuff. So that's been, that's been good. 
I'm I'm so glad to hear that there's been the supportive response yeah. so far. That that's so encouraging. And one thing that I wondered about and just thinking of peer review that might come up is do you I, I saw that you, you did a very kind of inclusive mailing list sending mm-hmm. and offering participation. And as we know, we all receive a lot of offers to participate. Yes and don't all have time. And so I wondered if you had any thoughts about the people who did decide to participate. Mm-hmm. Do you, and it's, it has to be speculation, but do you have any thoughts about whether people with lived experience would be more likely to participate or less likely or any ideas about that? Yeah. So I don't, our goal, we actually really strived when we were developing the study and developing the materials because we thought about that. That was our main concern when we were trying to develop how are we going to advertise it? What are we going to say in the emails? Because we knew um, whatever number we found, whatever the prevalence was, the immediate question is going to be, well, is this representative? Right. Um, as it should be. That's mm-hmm. a super important question. Um and so we made a concerted effort to describe the study both in the in its title, in the emails, and in the consent form as being about re, uh, psychologists and trainees' research and clinical interests. And so um, that's also in, in large part because we were very interested in me-search, both mental health-related and not mental health-related, and we were interested in people's perceptions of um me search versus non me search. So we have mm-hmm. some vignettes in the data set where we ask people, you know, a hypothetical person um, who's interested in a topic for X, Y, or Z reason, how do you perceive that? And so we asked that stuff first before we got to the questions about do you have, have you ever had a mental health difficulty or a diagnosis? Um, that's also part of why the full sample does not everybody answered that question because some folks, you know, mm. stopped in the middle. Um, but we really designed it to make it as sort of generically titled as possible. So it doesn't ask anything about mental health. It doesn't ask anything about personal experiences um, until you get kind of midway through the survey. So we're hoping that that's, you know, kind of reasonable in terms of of um, representativeness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably the best we can do, but you're right. We don't know, um, you know, if there's a sampling bias one direction or the other. You know, that's difficult to, it would be difficult to test. You do have a fairly good rate of return, I would say, mm-hmm. compared to other 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 surveys. So Yeah, we sent that. out a little under 9,000 emails and a little under 2,000 responded total. Not everybody yeah. filled out the mental health questions, but um, but yeah, we had a pretty good rate of return. Yeah, you alluded a little bit to kind of these more programmatic challenges, right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like each you, what you in the commentary you provided a set of recommendations mm-hmm. of what you think would be as a field these are questions that we should wrestle and then perhaps uh, programs need to start being more forward as you said you know in our in our statement we we're having an application mm-hmm. so how much are we going to encourage or not applicants to talk about their self-disclosure and how much mm-hmm. importance are we going to have are you starting to have this, those talks in your department how is how is, is that conversation started yet or how is that looking 
Yeah. So I, I, I've obviously sent my colleagues the preprints, sure. but um, because it's the summer, we haven't had any kind of formal meetings about it yet. Um, it's definitely something that I plan to bring up within the clinical program when we get back probably in early September, especially mm-hmm. because we are, you know, we're already having conversations about more broadly diversity, equity, and inclusion right. in graduate training. We're having conversations about how we want to update or change our graduate admissions process around GRE scores and in-person versus virtual interviewing and all these other kinds of things that I think dovetail nicely with some of these questions around, well, how can we make transparent what we want of applicants? Um Mm-hmm. Both so that that they know what we're accepting of and also because applicants have different levels of kind of mentorship around these things. And I think sometimes sometimes applicants, if nobody tells you don't disclose this thing in your mm-hmm. statement and then you disclose it and you don't get any interviews, you know, that's going to be harmful for students who don't have as many resources to kind of support them applying. Um, so, yeah, it's something that I really want to be kind of moving forward and having those conversations, at least within my program. I'm not the director of clinical training. I'm just one mm. faculty out of many, but I'm really grateful that I'm within a program that really cares about this stuff and is willing to have those conversations. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can, um, can start to talk about it amongst ourselves as faculty and then move to talking about it with the grad students. And um, one of the things we're actually doing right now in my program is doing a survey of alumni around the uh, climate of the program. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I added to that survey was asking about mental health experiences, disclosure, um, access to resources, what they'd want to see changed. And so I'm hoping that those data as well, that's a program evaluation survey. So it's not it's not ever going to get published in a study, but um, but really hoping that that information will be useful to us as we kind of work on on integrating that into the program moving forward. Yeah. Gosh, it's so yeah. It's I mean I I almost have like too many thoughts coming out at once because I, I can think about my own admissions room and this, mm-hmm. I think every department in in the United States is dealing with exactly the same issues and not yeah. just in psychology. So it's it's a really heady heady issue. Especially see, I, I actually wrote in my notes to talk about it as a diversity issue. Right? Is mm-hmm. this idea that uh, well, if we want to be and you, I think you talked about it in the, either the commentary or the paper that disability rights activists often uh, mention something along the lines of you know nothing about us without us yep and so if we are going to be mental health uh you know in some way we we advocate for mental health illness so Mm -hmm. uh wouldn't it be benefits benefit us more as a field to have more representation of the people who have those disorders right right Um, right. and at the same time be I, i can be my own devil's advocate and be like well you know, if I may just kind of indulge in that mm-hmm. role for a second, like, you know, we, it, it, it the process of of grad school is grueling. Uh, sure. You kind of are looking for a certain level of what do we want to call like grit, I guess. And I'm going to get too Angela Duckworth on all of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but uh, that and I'm like, you know, that but, and at the same time, I catch myself like, well, just because you are not just because you may have lived experience with mental illness, that doesn't mean that you're not gritty. Right. 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 And so I I go back yeah. and them, like, it's OK. So how do how do I assess this as a as a as a faculty member looking for a potential student? Right. And, how, you know, where's what are the in some way, because I often hear some of my 
colleagues that we do play a gatekeeping role yep. to a degree. And so how do we create a, a, an inclusive gatekeeping, if you will, yeah. which is a bit yeah. of an moron. It's super important. And I think, you know, the couple things that I go back to, one is people who don't disclose in their personal statements may very well have lived experience right. too. So I think, you know, sometimes there's this kind of false sense of, oh, well, if we, mm-hmm. if we don't admit this person who disclosed, then we're, you know, dodging a bullet in case they might have impairment. It's like, well, or maybe the people who aren't disclosing are going to have impairment, you know, you never know. Um, and I also sometimes recommend people think about, okay, if you, would you say the same thing about a, a person who was marginalized on the basis of another aspect of their identity. Like, you know, would you say, oh, well, this um, this applicant's in a wheelchair and that would make their time in grad school harder because they might not be able to get into certain practica place sp- spaces. So maybe they're not cut out for grad school. I would certainly hope not. Mm-hmm. Right. I would hope that that faculty would say, oh, gosh, that's discriminatory. You know, can the student do the work? Yes, they can. Might they need accommodations? Sure. Does that mean that they're, you know, any less qualified? No. And I think sometimes for some reason with mental health, it's I think because people sometimes don't see it in that kind of disability lens. And I do want to be careful because not everybody who has a mental health diagnosis right. or difficulty identifies in that way. Yeah. So I, I, I get that. Um but really trying to think through, you know, just because something might be harder for someone doesn't necessarily mean that they're not qualified or not capable. And in my very anecdotal experience, the people that I know who have managed to be competitive applicants, competitive grad students, competitive faculty while living with mental illness, like these are the people who, you know, to to use the Angela Duckworth term, like that is grit, right? Mm-hmm. These are folks that have persevered um, in spite of, in addition to, on top of all of these other things. And so, you know, certainly you still want to obviously be evaluating on the basis of all the other things you're considering in faculty applications or grad applications, right? What's their experience like? What are their letters like? You know, what what's their level of fit? But if somebody has all of that, if they've worked in labs, if they've, you know, presented posters, written papers, they've got these stellar letters mm-hmm. and they have lived experience, to me, that's at a minimum equally competent and in some ways makes me feel like, okay, this person's already been able to kind of overcome a lot of these challenges. Um, you know, so that's that's at least kind of what I how I perceive it. I do think it's a it's sometimes tricky for folks who are applying because a lot of times in those personal statements and in those letters, we say it's a personal statement, but what we're really asking for is, you know, your research interest and your research right. background and all that kind of stuff. And so you know, kind of when I'm reading someone's personal statement that's talking about lived experience, it's not an immediate negative for me. It's not necessarily an immediate positive either. Mm. It really depends on how it's contextualized with the rest of their interests. You know, if somebody says, this is my lived experience and that's why I want to go to grad school, period, done. Mm. That's the end of my statement. Then I'm like, uh, like, do you like grad school there's a lot involved in grad school other than kind of based on your own lived experience, right? 
But to say my lived experience or the experience of a family member or the experience of a friend got me interested in this topic. And now I've dug into the literature and that's made me interested in X, Y, Z. And I want to do this kind of work and I want to do this kind of clinical practice. That's super compelling to me, you know? So I think, I think it can be a valuable piece of that puzzle um, rather than kind of a, a singular, well, because I have lived experience, I should automatically get in or automatically be excluded yeah 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 i would just highlight something briefly that you say that i think is important is that it, you're right it's not and your your study bears are out so people may have lived experience with some symptoms or a little bit of you know experience with it but it doesn't mean that they had impairment so that's that that's another important part of right because you can have study, right? you know also right. like it's very possible that you know, definitionally, if we think about kind of diagnoses, right, right it's going to have distress or impairment. But what domain that's in can vary. You know, you mm -hmm. can have lived experience with a particular difficulty that caused you real problems with your friendships, but maybe caused no problems in your work life, you know, or vice versa. Right. So I think just kind of recognizing that and the fact that a lot of folks are are still doing amazing work um, right. and a lot of folks have lived experience that's not current, you know, that's right. years, years in the past. So um, just, I think, appreciating the variability that there is among, you know, we talk about kind of lived experience as if it's this one thing, but really recognizing there's huge variability, both in terms of the types of symptoms you have, the chronicity, the severity, and how that intersects with other aspects of your identity. You know, if you're a, a member of a minoritized racial or ethnic group, you know, that in your experience of mental illness might be very different than someone who's white or if mm. you're LGBTQ plus or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. I could probably go on about that for a long time, but you get the gist. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, uh, that's Totally. These are excellent points. And also with the impairment, part of what we do in our fields is hopefully have effective treatments for people to have less impairment, too. Right. So even the idea that if someone is experiencing impairment in the professional domain, that it would be OK for them to share that, get support for treatment or leave whatever is necessary during that right. time and then come back and be perfectly qualified and competent to right. work within the field because I think otherwise it does if we if we believe that we have interventions that can help people that are struggling with mental health problems then that means believing that we can take people out of places where we're reducing that impairment where they can advocate for themselves and still yeah. pursue their dreams and goals right and it's you know one of the ethical obligations of psychologists and of people training psychologists is to to learn how to pay attention to your own well-being mm -hmm. so that you can be an ethical practitioner mm -hmm. and i think we do ourselves and our field a disservice by by creating this perception well if we if we filter this group of people out then impairment's not a problem. You know, anyone can experience professional impairment over the course of their career, mm -hmm. whether or not they right. came into grad school with lived experience. You know, people develop mental health conditions all the time. It doesn't necessarily happen before grad school. And so rather than saying, well, if we keep this group out, the rest of us are all fine and dandy to say, whatever your background is, you know, you might go through a really severe life experience. You might be going through grief. You might develop problems with a substance. And part of 
our own ethical practice is being aware of what's going on with us and knowing when to seek help, when to seek consultation, um, when it might not be appropriate for you to see clients, that kind of a thing. Um, so it's really all part and parcel of these kind of larger aspects of training, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As you were mentioning, kind of, we were trained to recognize this, um, you know, these signals of distress in others and in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I hope I'm not bringing you too much on the spot. I did ask you in advance. So, dear oh, listeners, yeah, yeah. please do not send me hate email <laughs> saying, how dare I ask this question? I asked in advance if I could. But I noticed in your email signature, a very, a very mm-hmm. interesting, very candid, you said that uh, Dr. Victor copes with stress by overworking on an atypical schedule. And it was followed by a very kind message saying, you know, please do not feel pressured to reply yeah. to this email until it's convenient. And I, I really think that we can all relate to that sentiment in certainly in grad school and certainly mm-hmm. uh, you know, st- assistant faculty, whatever you're like, oh, I know what I need to do in order to reduce the stress is to work harder in yep. order to reduce that. And, uh, that, and the, or that's how I, I certainly have said to myself, like, you know, my my stress relief is sometimes work or I get, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting flow when I do that. But at the same time, I would have oftentimes a partner say you're burning the candle on both on both ends yep. and i would take that external so maybe you can talk a lot uh, do you mind talking a little bit about your no, decision to course. create this message yeah. and, you know what your views on that are yeah so i i put that up at the start of the pandemic as we were all kind of transitioning mm-hmm. to working remotely and i was building my lab and had two new grad students join my lab um mid-pandemic and i realized you know i know when i'm working and when i'm not working i know that um, when I send an email at 10 p.m., it's probably because I started work at noon and I mm. took a significant mm. break in the middle. Um, but they don't know that because they're not at my house. And um, and so I wanted to make it really clear that just because I might be emailing at, you know, a late hour doesn't mean that I assume that they're working at that time or that it needs to be an urgent response. I, I'm very much a night owl. Um, mm-hmm. If I could, if I could, welcome to the club. You know, yeah, if I could make my own <laughs> schedule, you know, completely independent of everybody else, I'd probably, you know, get to work at noon, uh, yes, work until eight, yes. you know, that's, that's my preference. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously during, you know, during the academic year when I'm teaching, that's not entirely possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had so many people respond positively to that message that I think I'm just going to keep it even when yeah. I'm back in the office in the fall. Um, I think it's a good reminder that when you're interacting with someone professionally, you're only seeing one piece of the puzzle. You're only seeing one part of their life and their work. And sometimes it might be that someone's struggling and they're overworking to compensate. Sometimes they might be struggling and they might be missing deadlines or not responding to your emails or something else. And so I think just trying to keep that in mind, and I really try to do that particularly with students as well as colleagues. Um, you know, if somebody does something that's annoying to me or they don't get back to me or, you know, I recommend a change in a paper and it doesn't happen, try to remind myself, okay, I I am only seeing that side of what's happening for them. Mm -hmm. For all I know, there's all sorts of stuff in their life that's way more important than, you know, getting the discussion questions in for class on time or whatever it is. Um, And that's in part reflected from my experiences of having times in in grad school and postdoc where things were really, really hard. And, you know, my tendency is to always put work first, but that doesn't mean that I you know, was always 100%. And so trying to, I guess, give other people the grace that I would hope people give me mm. um, or have given me as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, I mean, that really resonated for me. Like, oh my God, like, oh, that that hit <laughs> close. Uh, and it just, it also, in the context of reading your paper, I thought, you know, it's really interesting how much that, I don't know if it's an ethos or it's just kind of part of the culture, is that mm-hmm. there is this pressure and it, it is certainly, um, I don't know, it's lionized, I guess. Yeah. That that, that we, it's like, well done. That, that That is definitely, and, and I struggle. I do, and I will say mm-hmm. I'll struggle personally because I do, like pushing myself as, as you know people who are yeah. me oftentimes we do thrive in a challenging kind of like let me push it a little bit harder let me push it a little bit harder and oftentimes not really knowing where to kind of let off a little bit yeah. and so I, I really go I struggle because between how do I know when I'm pushing too hard like it's too much do I always have the insight to say yeah, I'm, I'm, it's too much this is going to be deleterious and to the point that I'm also being self-indulgent like no oh, no I need to take another self-care day mm-hmm. uh and and that that's finding that balance is difficult for me. Yeah, it's so, it's so hard. And I think one of the things that is really challenging about being in academia is that we have very amorphous goalposts, Mm. you know, there's, Mm -hmm. you can't say to someone, well, okay, if you publish this many papers and we multiply them by whether you're, you know, what your author order is and divide by impact factor and you get this number or higher, you know, you will get a faculty job or, you know, if you write, you know, this many grants, you're guaranteed to get this, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's super Mm -hmm. dependent on all these external things, all the, all these different context factors. And so for people like my, I can only speak for myself. Like I'm very much a person who wants to kind of do all the things Mm. and, you know, kind of check all the boxes and not disappoint anyone. And that's really hard in academia because there's always another project. There's always another paper. There's always another, you know, um, service opportunity for you to take on. There's always, you know, X, Y, Z. And so I think you're right that coming up with some, some mechanism for yourself, whether that's checking in with loved ones, whether that's setting limits on particular times of day or days of the week that you're not working, you sort of have to build that in because your work could take up every waking hour Mm -hmm. um, and you could still feel like there's things you're not doing. And that's obviously not sustainable. Yeah. I think that one thing I've noticed about leaving academia a little over two years ago and switching into more clinical setting, now half clinical, half research, is that there are, at least among therapists, it seems to be built in regular check-ins about mm-hmm. how is your balance, how how is your life balanced, how is your mental health, self-care, compassion, fatigue, and all these checks yeah. that are at the forefront because you can really feel it if you're seeing a lot of patients during the week and you're having a harder time thinking clearly because of your own distress or overwork. That being said, it is of course hard to set boundaries, especially when there are wait lists or Mm, emergencies, but at least purely based on my experience, I think in therapist circles, it is something that is talked a lot about Mm -hmm. because there is kind of this idea that you can't do your job effectively if you're not taking care to some extent of your mental health. And and that means maybe putting in breaks or boundaries around exactly what your practice is going to look like. And so that's been nice. And that's not necessarily in my workplace, but just among other clinical friends and and that that kind of regularly gets discussed. Yeah. And that was my experience like on internship, um, you know, that I knew 
what clients I was supposed to see. I knew what groups I was supposed to run and I could take on an extra client, but there, there wasn't an expectation that I was going to fill my Saturdays and Sundays and, and every evening mm-hmm. with, with mm-hmm. clinical work. Right. Um, whereas especially in the pandemic in the last, you know, year and a half, like I could be working anytime all the time. And so having to set those limits. And I think, um, I think you're right that there's not there's not really anything kind of official or or and I realize in clinical context, there's not necessarily something official either. But I'm thinking about, for instance, when I submit my annual progress reports or when I do my Mm. students, um, you know, my students semester evaluations, there's nothing on there about like. Have I checked in with them about how they're doing as people? Mm. Has my, you know, faculty mentor checked in with me about how I'm doing? I, I try to do that because I care and I mm. want to be a good mentor, but, but there's nothing obligating mm. me to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, that's a, a real challenge because a lot of times, especially, well, really for both faculty and grad students, you're being, kind of placed in a new environment where you you in many cases have moved across the country to go yeah. to a grad program or to start a faculty position. You don't necessarily have a ton of support outside of the program or outside of the department. And so it can be hard to set those boundaries and limits unless you have people around you who are really modeling that or really asking you and checking in and saying, hey, what are you doing other than working? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's an important conversation faculty need to be having about how to how to do that for students and for each other yeah yeah it's it's interesting. i feel like we it's it's every time that conversation starts or i've heard is it, like yeah i want you to be doing that and then immediately it, it's it's followed by okay but not this week we need to visit right it. i'm it too busy i have too many deadlines and it never <laughs> happens so it is it's always kind of that uh, i don't know sisyphian um kind of task very yeah. cool very cool thank you yeah, yeah. that's that's awesome yeah. Well, that kind of that it does it. I mean, it kind of both in the clinical settings and in faculty and academic settings. That's where it does kind of rise to where you see the system matters a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Because as much yeah. as you as we want to check in with people and see how they're doing and do all of these things, there are specific things that are highly rewarded, and they're not yep. always checking in on well-being. And so that is where it's hard. And I, I think that just knowing that can sometimes be helpful because it doesn't become another thing to feel guilty for not also making sure every managing everyone and checking in with everyone and making sure everyone's okay can also be difficult in an academic setting when you're trying to stay afloat during a pandemic right. and do all of your work too. And managing the boundaries of, you know, what I, yeah. I, I teach uh, first year graduate psychopathology to our first year clinical and counseling students. And I always start off the class by saying, you know, A, we're going to talk about really difficult things. And it's important to recognize that we don't know anybody's individual experience or family experience. So one thing we do not do in this class is talk about people with psychopathology as if they're sort of the other separate from us. Um but I also have to then say, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, but I'm not your clinical psychologist. Right, right. And and that's tricky because I want, you know, I tend to think of myself as a pretty warm and fuzzy and empathetic person. And mm-hmm. I, I want people to be able to come to me if they're having challenges, especially as you're starting grad school. And it's also not appropriate or ethical for me to be 
a therapy provider for my students, whether they're in my class or in my lab. And so that's, I think you're right, where it comes down to, okay, what resources are there for, for folks who are struggling so that they can get the support they need? And, you know, it could be professional support from me. That's great. But so that they can get actual mental health support, you know, that's, that's affordable, that's accessible, that doesn't, cause a conflict of interest um, or a dual relationship, mm-hmm. you know, how can we set that up, particularly in places where, you know, I'm in, I'm in Lubbock, which is mm-hmm. uh, kind of its own city in the middle yeah. of uh, a Panhandle, big, Texas. yes, big, you know, we're, we have 300,000 people and the next biggest city is over five hours away. Right. So in terms of mental health care, a lot of the places that are sliding scale are accessible are where our students sure. do their practica placements. Yeah. You know, so um, these are kind of those logistical structural issues I think about a lot. Yeah, very, very. Interesting. I don't know. I, I could go for hours. I just keep thinking about <laughs> so many things. The, the probably the I mean, I'm kind of keep, keeping an eye on the watch because I, you guys are sure. two hours ahead of me. But I, I also I was looking at your um, the supplemental table in your your mm-hmm. commentary and some of the positive and the negative disclosures and some of the negative disclosures. Sure. And it, it was it was interesting to me to see how I can see perhaps sometime there was one I highlighted something along the um, the lines of the, the faculty member said that this, oh, yeah oh yeah when tearful tearful disclosing that I sometimes struggle with depression my primary mentor shrugged saying well you're still productive when you're depressed. And mm-hmm. I literally just kind of wrote a comment to myself saying, oof, yeah. uh, because it was like, wow, that really hurt. And I can also see, uh, um, and, you know, and, uh, talking about generational differences, you know, yeah. the older mentor perhaps being in a very well-meaning, but, you know, maybe maladroit way to saying like, oh, well, you're still, you know, kudos for you. You're still kind of ha- hanging in there. Yeah, uh, you could you're see it. They're, right? Maybe they're. You know, it's and that's not my example, so I can't speak to, yeah, exactly. to like how it was I don't know said, what but tone I could, was exactly, right? I could totally like, see, oh. yeah, I could totally see it being said in a very dismissive and validating way, and I could also see it being said with the attempt to be right. sort of, oh, but I'm trying to be encouraging that you're still doing good work. Obviously, it did not come across that way, um, and that's one of the things I think about a lot that because so many times people are having these conversations as though there's no one in the room with whatever difficulty they're talking about. Um, but but now we know there's all these folks in the room and nobody's able or, you know, has the kind of ability to really say, oh, hey, that's messed up. Don't say that. Um, and so kind of one of my hopes for this, the results of this work is that people who have lived experience if they're in a position where they feel like it's, you know, reasonable and safe and risk away the benefits, when people say stuff that's potentially, you know, whether it's overtly harmful or, you know, the person's trying but not doing a great job, um, to have the ability to say, hey, actually, like, here, here's why what you just said is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that shouldn't be the responsibility of someone who's really distressed and upset. And I certainly don't expect, you know, the person in that example to have done that at the time, but it's something I try to think about now, um, kind of bringing those things up in situations where I feel comfortable so that other people who don't have the kind of, um, security or, or power to be able to do that, like that I can do that for those people in the same way that I've seen other people do that 
before I was in a position to feel like I could. Sure. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that point. I was actually recently talking to someone else at Leo and I went to grad school about how the director of our clinic and also my graduate mentor at the time, Thomas Joyner, was very clear to us that we're mm-hmm. not to mm-hmm. say stigmatizing mm-hmm. negative things about people with mental health problems. And that meant to each other, that meant out in public. He said, yep. you never know who's listening. And mm-hmm. it, it means it's hurtful for people to view, especially people within the mental health profession, to say yeah. those types of things that are belittling to people. And I've really exactly. appreciated that because I feel that that stuck with me and also probably made a lot of people in the room feel safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a similar conversation in my first year of grad school where we were talking about, you know, not talking about clients in an identifying way in public and mm-hmm. and the conversation about even if it's not identifying, even if you're not saying their name or yeah. something, but if you know, you're out to dinner and you're yeah. you're laughing about you know, someone did this ridiculous thing in therapy and someone at the next table doesn't know who you're talking about, but now they're sitting there thinking, well, is my therapist laughing about me while they're out to dinner with somebody? You know, it's just not, it's not appropriate. Um, And it, it, you know, and I think kind of extending that to within conversations with colleagues in the field, you know, even if you're not out in public, but you don't know that you know, your fellow grad student doesn't have that diagnosis or doesn't have a family member with that diagnosis or any of those things. You know, the, the I think because of my work in self-injury and suicide, the amount of times that people will say really stigmatizing things about borderline personality disorder mm. to me is just mind-blowing. And mm. I don't even study BPT. That's mm-hmm. not my primary mm-hmm. research, but um, it happens all the time. And, you know, to think about, well, if I had a a family member with that, or if I struggled with that and just was exposed to those kinds of negative things all the time. Um, And I wonder to what extent that's contributing to the fact that we're seeing less or lower prevalence of things like personality disorders and psychotic disorders in, in our community, because people are hearing, you know, if, if I lived with BPD and I wanted to be in a graduate program and heard people say terrible things about people with BPD, I probably wouldn't want to hang around for very much longer Mm -hmm. in that, in that area, you know? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for this important discussion today. I just am so grateful for your work and also grateful for the opportunity to hear the thought and very thoughtful aspects of Mm -hmm. the design and the commentary piece and all of that. So thank you very much. Where can listeners follow your work on social media or through your website? And we'll also link these in the show notes. Sure. Um, So my website is sarahevictor.com and that has listings of publications. It's got um, information about studies where we're recruiting participants and it's also got a resources page um, related to self-injury and suicide resources. Um, And then I'm also pretty active on Twitter. My handle is at Sarah E. Victor. Um, Again, generally tweeting about mental health advocacy, stigma, suicide prevention, self-injury research, and sometimes pictures of cats. So (laughs) um, some of that as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Yeah, no, thank you so much for being on for in such short notice. I'm really interested to see how the paper, when it comes out and the reception and everything else, this this really captures an interesting side, guys. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to get to to hear people's thoughts about it and just to get it out in the world. So very excited.